in our series, I think we're addressing one of our greatest challenges as Christians, and it's this. How do we experience family life the way that God created it, the way God designed it to be experienced? And just so you know, when the Apostle Paul addressed this in the first century, this is how he answered this question. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. He said, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he tells us the, 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 how, how to do it. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. So Paul says it's very, very simple. Wives, if you'll just submit. Husbands, if you'll just love. Children, if you'll just obey. Dads, if you'll make sure you don't unnecessarily tick off your children, you're going to experience family life the way God intended it to be experienced. Any questions? And you're like, oh yeah, I got all kinds of questions. Like some of you ladies, your head's about to explode right now because you heard the S word in church. Submit. What's that all about? How first century is that, right? We have lots of questions. It's not that simple. And that's true. It's not that simple. That's why if you go to any bookstore, millions of books have been written on this subject. Infinite number of studies have been conducted. You know, that's why many of us have taken classes and attended seminars about how to do family better. And it's almost as if we're drowning in a sea of information, but we still have so many questions because we still have so many issues in our marriage relationships, and our family relationships that we can't seem to get right. Well, as we're going to see this weekend, it's simpler than you think. In fact, Solomon in the book of Proverbs, he kind of cuts through all the complexity, and he tells us that there are really only two things that are essential to have a strong family. Two things are essential in the formation of that family that you are so longing for. And it may be just as simple as, well, pull the nail out of your forehead, right? And I think that we can make it more complicated, and we often do, right? But Solomon says, when it's all said and done, strong families are the result of two things. One, solid marriages. Two, effective parenting practices. That's it. He says, if you want a great family as God intended it, you gotta have a solid marriage, and you gotta have effective parenting practices. That pretty much sums it up. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about these two issues. And uh, I'm going to get, begin by talking about marriage, but I'm going to hit marriage kind of lightly because when I finish up this series, Family 2.0, we're going to take a week, we're going to have the Watoto Children's Choir here, and then the next week I'm going to begin a new series we're calling Marriage 2.0. And in that series I'm going to talk a lot about marriage. I'm going to talk about uh, how do you have a great marriage, what are biblical grounds for divorce and getting remarried, what does the Bible say about same-sex marriage? It's a big part of our culture. We have to address it. So I'm going to be saying a lot about marriage. But there's one principle that seems to be very, very important to Solomon. So I'm going to hit on that this weekend. And then we're going to spend some time talking about uh, being an effective parent. If you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to the book of Proverbs. We'll begin in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 18. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses up on the side screen. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. This is what Solomon says. May your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her life. And he says, basically Solomon says this. The, the, the girl that you marry in your youth, the boy that you marry in your youth, stick with them. Make it last always. Make sure that it goes on forever. Now I know a lot of you, you know, uh, that's kind of complicated. If you're not a hunter, the whole deer and doe thing, and some of you men, the, the minute I said breast, you just checked out and started daydreaming. So come on back. You know, we're like middle schoolers. We never quite grow up, right? But really what Solomon is saying in this verse is this. 
He says we need to establish solid marriages. As Christians, we need to figure out how to establish marriages that are going to last. And he says the way you do that is you find that joyful sweet spot in your relationship with your spouse. And you revel in that joy. You focus on that joy, whatever it is. And this is what's interesting. See, we do that when we first get married. You talk to any couple who's just getting married, or maybe you go to the rehearsal dinner, or you're at the reception, or maybe even it comes out during the ceremony, or you pass by them and say, so why do you want to spend the rest of your life with this person? And they can just spit out eight, nine, ten things that they love about this individual. And they're so excited to spend the rest of their life with this individual. But this is what happens. Basically, psychiatrists tell us that within the first two years of marriage, we drain out all of the romance and infatuation. The problem is, most of us, when we get married, we don't love each other. We are infatuated with each other. We think we love each other, but you can't really love someone until you've been down that road, you've been on that journey, you've been through some tough times together. Then you find out, am I, am I in love? Because love's about a commitment. It's a decision in the mind. Or am I infatuated? And so they show up in my office after two years, and they can't stand each other, and they want a divorce, and it's not going to work. And it's like, what happened to all of those wonderful things you saw in that person two years ago? Well, you know what? Most of the time, they're still there, but they've taken a back seat. To all the other things that have shown up. See the better for worse. Now the worst is showing up. And he's a lot worse than you took him for. So like I don't know what to do. Right? I always tell couples this. Guys what you did to get her. Is what you do to keep her. Ladies what you did to get him. <laughs> is what you do to keep him. But see we don't do that. We, we, don't focus, we don't focus on that. I think that's what Solomon is saying here. He says you got to identify the common interest and passions in that relationship, and you got to figure out how to make time and focus on those things. In other words, everything in your marriage is not going to be great. So you can invest your energy in all the negative things, or you can focus on the area of your marriage where you get that satisfaction, the things that brought you together originally. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. By the way, why does Solomon begin this way? Well, you just got to understand, marriage as God planned it was designed to last forever. It was designed to be permanent. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, you know. You got Adam and Eve and God, he's going to perform the first ever wedding ceremony. God is himself the officiating minister. I wonder what his honorarium is, right? And uh, he brings them together, and this is what he says in verse 24, chapter 2. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The word cleave there in the Hebrew is glue. And it's the idea that you are glued together in such a way you cannot be separated. If you are separated, it is going to do incredible damage. It was meant to stay together, to become one. See, and it was designed that way because God knew that marriage is the bedrock foundation that families are to be built on. Which means this, we cannot improve our families without the development of permanent, satisfying marriages. And just so you know, the only kind of marriage that Solomon really understands is a lifelong marriage. And I think Solomon was probably a nice guy. I think he would listen patiently to all the discussions about no-fault divorce multiple marriages, all the reasons we feel we have the right to get out of a marriage and enter into another marriage. But I think when it's all said and done, he would reiterate, he'd go back to this, yeah, but I'm encouraging you, rejoice in the wife of your youth. That is your best option in life to have a permanent, satisfying marriage. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, that, you would expect Solomon to say that. You would expect the Bible to say that. You would expect some old pastor who's been married 36 years to say that. But you know what? Statistics say this. If you want to be married and have a satisfying permanent marriage, your best option is your first marriage. Think about it. In your first marriage, you have a 52% chance survival rate. 
By the time you get to your second marriage, it drops to 40%. By the time you get to your third marriage, this is statistics, it drops to 27% chance of being a permanent marriage. So statistics bear out what Solomon says. But somebody sent me an email this week, and it was really kind of interesting. It had a link, to a, a link to a blog. And it's a blog written by a lady. Her name is Gigi Grazer. And you probably don't know that name. I didn't know it. She actually wrote the screenplay if you saw the movie Stepmom. My wife made me sit through that. And then, but she's also written a six New York Times best-selling novel. She's a writer. No indication of being a Christian. In fact, no indication of any spiritual foundation in her life whatsoever. But she has been married and divorced twice. And she does have kids. She, she wrote this blog about why you should stay married to your first spouse. Whatever you can do, whatever you need to do to make it work, make it work. And this is what she says. She gives us five reasons why you should not divorce your first spouse. Here's the first one. Your options are horrible. This is what she writes. All men suck. And all men are great. All men are annoying. And all men put the toilet seat down every time. All men are needy. And all men live to make you happy. All men are demanding. And all men are easy. All men are cheap. And all men love shopping at the Tiffany's counter. All men are dull. And all men will whisk you off to Napa on a moment's notice. She writes, do you get what I'm saying here? Men are human. Women are human. Basically, if you hate your spouse and get divorced, you will be trading him or her for a very similar model. So there's her first point. Just stay with the one you got. Second, second reason to stay in your original marriage. Raising kids on your own is horrible. She writes, says, kids are not better off with divorced parents. Go ahead and start your emails now. Okay, MikeLGetHope.net because I know they're coming. Recently, there was a new study in the American Sociological Review that showed children of divorce lag in math scores and social skills for years. She writes, my observation of children of divorce, including my own, are simple. Divorce makes your kid's life harder. Would you want to go to a different home every few days because it suits someone else's schedule? Would you like to remember at which house you left your wallet, your laptop, your workout bag? How about sleep in a different bed, use a different toothbrush, get used to the new person in the kitchen? Are the master bedroom. Your kids have to remember textbooks, notebooks, backpacks, favorite t-shirts, socks, vans, homework, football helmet, cleats. No wonder these kids are more anxious. Consistency is key to a happy, healthy childhood. Guess what's inconsistent? She writes, living with divorce. Third reason to stay in your original marriage. The money is horrible. She writes, financially speaking, both men and women are better off staying married. Post-divorce, the higher wage earner typically pays alimony and child support. The lower wage earner typically endures a lower standard of living. Fighting over money turns people into the worst versions of themselves. This is true whether you're divorced or married. Throw divorce lawyers into the mix, and you have a recipe for bankruptcy, both financial and moral. Fourth reason to stay in your original marriage, raising other people's kids suck. Because you're also raising not only their issues, but their parents' issues. And that's a lot of issues. Why put yourself through the drama? How do you fit the puzzle pieces together when one of the pieces is a hormonal preteen, another is a borderline personality ex bent on destroying everything in his or her path, including their own child, and a third is a dog who growls every time you walk into the room? This is not a romantic scenario. Fifth reason to stay in your original marriage. Dating is horrible. 
She says this, look at your date. Does his slightly wheezy laugh grate on your nerves? Every little quirk that you find the slightest bit irritating in your dining partner is guaranteed to become the central core of his personality as years pile up. Good luck with that. But here's the best one, and this is incredible insight for a lady, from what I can tell, has no relationship with God. I had to clean this up considerably just to use it in church. Uh, she says, synergy is horrible when it's gone. Now listen to what she says. A couple is more than just the sum of two people. I love this phrase. The two of you have combined to make something that would not otherwise exist. What we are together is greater than what we are apart. On the other hand, when you divorce, there's you in the divorce. A marriage is a living thing. A divorce, while it can go on forever in court, bankrupting you financially, emotionally, mentally, and physically, it is not a living thing. It is a death. But it's really hard to see that when you're furious at each other with one foot out the door and your middle finger raised high in the air. You know what she's saying? She's saying what Solomon said. She's saying what statistics bear out. <laughs> your best chance in life of having a satisfying permanent marriage is your first one. And so Solomon says, you do everything you can to make it work. If you need to make compromises, make compromises. If you need to get help, get help. If you need to go to counseling, go to counseling. If you need to fast and pray, fast and pray. If you need to once again do the 21-day sex challenge to try to you know, get the spark back, then go through the 21-day sex challenge. But figure out a way to stay together. Figure out a way to make the most of your marriage because strong families flow out of strong marriages. And I know that even as I say that, many of you sitting here right now, you are in the middle of a confusing and maybe a very painful marriage situation. Maybe you're in a marriage that now seems like it was a bad idea from the start. Or maybe you married the right person, but somewhere along the way it took a terrible turn. Or maybe your marriage has never lived up to your expectations. It's never become what you dreamed it would become, what you assumed it would become, what you prayed it would become. You know what Solomon says? Stay in it. Stay in it. That's what, you, that's what God expects from you. Stay in it. Figure out a way to make it work. You say, but I'm not happy. I got news for you. God did not create marriage so you would be happy. And some of you are saying, oh, good, I'm right on track. <laughs> marriage is not based on happiness. It's not even based on love. It's based on commitment. It's based on a covenant that you made before God. That you were taking this person for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death ends it. It's what you're committed to. Solomon says, stick with it. Now, in some extreme cases, there's going to be divorce. I know that. It's the reality we live in. But as you're going to see in marriage 2.0, God really only allows a couple of reasons for Christians. If you want to get out of a marriage and get into a new marriage, it's very, very small window that God says, I'm going to bless you if you do that. And as I said, I'm going to spend a couple of weeks on that in our next series. And I can feel the tension. Right now, some of you are about as uncomfortable as Lady Gaga in a convent. You know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> You're about as uncomfortable as you have been in church for a long time because statistics say about half of you sitting here have been divorced. I mean, that ship's already sailed. You can't, what do you do about that, right? And some of you have been through several divorces. And then some of you, you're in a category all by yourself because you're sitting here divorced, but that's the last thing you wanted. You did everything and would continue to do everything to make that marriage work, but the other person says, nope, I'm out. 
So this has probably stirred up some emotions that are very, very uncomfortable for you right now. But I'm just saying we have to talk about these things because we have to understand God's expectations. Because if we don't understand God's expectations as Christians, then we don't understand the parameter that God has given us to live our lives in. Because he says, you live within the parameter of my rules, my principles, my precepts. You position yourself to be blessed. You want to do it on your own? Then you're on your own. Right? And again, as I said at the very beginning of the series, man, this is not to beat you up and make you feel bad or guilty. We just have to know these things. But let me just say, whenever we have conversations like this, it should always be followed up with a reminder of what is the heart of Christianity. And at the heart of Christianity is a God who is filled with grace. See, that's what the gospel is all about. God giving us what we could never earn or deserve. At the heart of Christianity is the song we all sang earlier. We have a love of a God who never gives up. It never fails. It never runs out on us. That means that at the heart of Christianity is a God who offers second chances. At the heart of Christianity is a God who knows we mess up, who knows we make mistakes. At the heart of Christianity is a God who knows that sometimes, yeah, we color outside the lines. At the heart of Christianity, though, is a God who offers grace Second chances to everyone who's blown it in this area. So here's my advice this weekend. Don't feel guilty. Don't beat yourself up. The past is the past. You can't do anything about it. This is my advice to you. Claim God's grace, but determine I'm drawing the line in the sand, and from here on out, I am doing it God's way. I don't care if you're on your 15th marriage. This is the one you're going to get right. Or if you're thinking about getting out of a marriage, you should really talk to somebody first. Now, once you have that solid marriage, come on, people, smile. Once you have that solid marriage, you know, then it's downhill sledding, right? No, because we have these things called children that we have to figure out how to raise. And just so you know, parenting is not for the weak. If you don't believe me, just check out some of the parenting train wrecks in the Bible. I mean, you're fresh into the book of Genesis, and a few chapters in, we meet a guy named Abraham. We all know Abraham. God came to Abraham and said, for some reason, I picked you, and you're going to be the father of a great nation, the father of the Jews. I mean, your descendants, Abraham, they're going to number like the stars, which infers you're going to have to have some children. Problem is, Abraham's old, Sarah's old, so they decided to take matters into their own hands because they don't want to wait on God. Abraham's already 86. They're having a conversation like, I don't see this happening, right? So Sarah has a great idea. Sarah, his wife, she says, why don't you sleep with my Egyptian maid named Hagar? And Abraham's like, she is a cutie, you know. <laughs> so he sleeps with Hagar. Obviously more than that went on because nine months later, she has a little boy. His name is Ishmael. A few years later, just as God promised, if they would have just been patient, Sarah does indeed get pregnant. She has a boy Named Isaac. You know what's name? It means laughter. Isaac means laughter. Because when Sarah heard she was going to get pregnant from God, she laughed. So they named him laughter. They have a little boy named Isaac, just as God had promised. The first thing that Abraham and Sarah do, the very first thing, is they kick Hagar and Ishmael out of the family. Kick them to the curb. I mean, how is that for family values, right? How is that for good parenting, right? And just so you know, the Arab race, I'll give you a little side note here, came through Ishmael. The Jewish race continued through Isaac. In fact, let me show you a verse, 25, Genesis 25, verse 18 says this. His, referring to Ishmael, his descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. 
as you go toward Asher, and they lived in hostility toward all their tribes related to them. And right there in Genesis chapter 5, you have the beginning of the Middle East crisis. Right there in Genesis chapter 5, because of bad parenting, you have the beginning of the Arab-Israeli conflict, which is still going strong, and I'll give you a little insight. It will never be resolved. I don't care who the president is until Jesus comes back. All that tension, all that conflict, all that upheaval goes back to bad parenting Abraham and Sarah. But they did have one boy, Isaac. He has twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, we looked at him last week. Do you remember what his name means? Deceiver. He got that because he tricked Esau, the oldest, out of his birthright. Big, do, big, big deal in, in the Jewish family. And because of that, Jacob became daddy's favorite. Esau lived his entire life in his brother's shadow. He was the black sheep. You can read it on your own. He couldn't catch a break. Last week we saw about Jacob. He had 12 sons, but he learned from his dad it's okay to have a favorite. So he made Joseph his favorite. We saw how dysfunctional that family was. Fast forward a little bit longer, you meet a guy named David, the greatest king in the nation, the history of the nation of Israel. The only man in the Bible who says he was a man after God's own heart. Doesn't say it once, it says it twice. Doesn't say it about anybody else. Horrible dad. Maybe the worst dad ever. I mean, he had kids killing each other, raping each other. One son who ran him off the throne ended up having to be killed himself. That son had to be killed. He was a horrible parent. One of his sons was Solomon, supposed to be the brightest guy who ever lived. I question that. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, second-class wives. That's 1,000. I like to say red, yellow, black, and white. They were all precious in Solomon's sight. He loved the women, right? See? Can you imagine how confusing Mother's Day must have been around the palace? I mean, can you see it? I don't know. Who am I with? You know, I mean, crazy around there. My point is this. I do have one. The Bible is full of stories about individuals who horrible parenting skills led to big disasters, big messes that we still live with today. Yet at the same time, some of these individuals were used greatly by God. Think about those names. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, who built God the temple, right? Here's my point. If they couldn't get it right, odds are we're not going to get it right. If they couldn't be perfect parents, let's assume we're not going to be perfect parents either. But let's be honest, most of us have a lot of room for improvement. We can be better. But let me tell you what it's going to take. It's going to take us to be more intentional as parents. Good, godly kids don't just happen. They don't just evolve. I like the way Deuteronomy chapter 6 explains it. Moses is talking to the Hebrew people right before they finally go into the promised land. Remember they came out of Egypt, they wandered in the desert, they're finally getting ready to go in. And he's like, he's giving them a reminder of what God expects because they're going to be in, they're going to meet different cultures and people with different belief systems and different morals. And this is what he says. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, Deuteronomy 6. The Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. What is he saying? He is saying God's truth, his principles, his precepts, they're to mark your life, they're to mark the life of your children, and they're to mark your home. And just in case you're wondering, parents, that is your job. It is not the responsibility of the church, and I apologize if we ever gave you that impression. We can come alongside and assist you in that process, but at the end of the day, it's your job, it is your responsibility. Now, Solomon addresses this whole idea of parenting 
and, and actually a very colorful way in the book of Proverbs. And I think that Solomon initially would wholeheartedly agree with Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. Solomon would agree with that. Now, let me just say this. They're expensive little gifts these days. But nonetheless, they're gifts. I read this week, to raise a child from birth to 18, $250,000. And you hadn't even got them in college yet, right? So they're expensive little gifts, but they're gifts. Then Solomon says this, I think reiterating that in Proverbs 23, verse 25. May your father and mother rejoice. May she who gave you birth be joyful. So children are a gift. They are a treasure from God. They should be treated accordingly. They should be prized. They should be cherished. They certainly should be valued. But Solomon isn't finished yet because he says there's something else as a parent you really need to know about your child. And it's this. Those innocent little cherubs that are sitting around your table, they have a streak of something in them. It's going to make your parenting a challenge. It's going to make it a nail-biter at times. And just so you know, I don't care how perfect you think your kid is, there are no exceptions. This is what it says, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it away, drive it far away. I like how the New American Standard put it. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from them. Now, we all know that there's this philosophical debate that has raged for centuries, Centuries in regards to children, you know, are children a product of their environment? Are they born innocent, perfect, pure, good, and yet they pick up bad habits from their siblings, their parents, you know, their friends, their environment, and they become bad kids? Or are children born with a predisposition toward evil, toward mischief? Well, the first part of this verse actually answers the question pretty clearly. Foolishness, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, is bound up in the heart of a child. And he's just saying what we know. It goes back to this doctrine. It's a doctrine of total depravity that we're all totally saved, unsaved when we're born. We're all totally separated from God. This goes back. Remember our first week we talked about uh, the spirit, spiritual genetic tendencies that we received from Adam and Eve because of the fall, this desire to, a feeling of shame, the desire to blame, a fame to end up, be up on top. You know, everybody else is responsible. It's not my fault. All goes back. So we know this theologically. I mean, our kids are born that way, but see, we also know it from experience. See, that's why you don't have to teach your little baby how to pitch a tantrum when they don't get what they want. You walk into the kitchen. Your toddler's got the hand in the cookie jar. Are you getting cookies? Nope. Did you have to teach them how to lie? Nah. Figured it out on their own. Did you teach them how to steal that cookie? Nope. Did you teach them how to be selfish and not share their Legos with others? Nope. They had it in them all along. They're depraved, right? I learned this when we had our first son, Aaron. He's 34 now, but when he was born, what a big boy. 10 pounds, 12 ounces. I went in there. They told me, your son had the biggest head ever born in this hospital. I'm like, that's my boy. I remember going down to the nursery and looking through the glass. And all the other dads were saying, who's that kid? Who's that three-month-old? That's mine. He, and he will kick your kid's butt right now, you know. That was my son, right? I was absolutely sure there was no evil, no rebellion lurking in the heart of that little angel. No possible way when I held him there could be a sinister streak in him. He was absolutely perfect. Fast forward to the age of four. I'm in the garage one day. We're living in Southern California. Laura comes out. She says, honey, i got to run some errands and take care of some things. Keep an eye on Aaron. He'll just play in the driveway in the yard. So he has a little toys, a little trike out there. And, and uh, he kept going to the neighbor's yard and wandering down toward the street. And I'd go get him and bring him back up. And I knows I'd go get him and bring him back up. So finally, I, I went and brought him back up. And I said, listen, you do that again. And I'm going to spank your little rear end till it will not hold shut. <laughs> now, let me just say something here. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know. But my dad used that on me. 
and the mental image of the, uh, uh, the ramifications of a rear end not holding shut just stuck with me, right? So I'm thinking, hey, I'll try it on him. So understand, I get right down on his level. I will spank you to your rear end will not hold shut. This is my best stuff. He looked at me four years old and said, I don't care. I mean, it was almost like, mm -hmm, come on, baby. Come on, bring it on, daddy, right? And I'm like dumbfounded. Laura's not home. What do I do? I mean, good gracious. He hasn't even started school yet. I still got to get him through middle school and high school, right? That's the day we started to pray, God help us. We don't have a clue what to do with this kid. And my guess is, as parents, sometimes we've all, all prayed that. We just got the wake-up call early. We were married. I was 22. Laura was 19. We had our first kid when I was 24, and she was 21. We didn't know what we were doing. But we, we figured out early on, we were going to have to find this balance between loving Aaron and at the same time establishing some very firm, appropriate boundaries. Because it was very painfully obvious to us that he was going to need both. He's going to need love, but he's also going to need some strong boundaries. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There are verses that help us. Look at this one. Proverbs 23, verses 14, 13 and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish them with the rod, they will not die. Now, if you grew up in church like I did, you know the old King James Version. It says, beat them, they will not die. That's old school right there. NIV cleaned it up a little bit. Punish them with the rod and save them from death. I mean, how is that for clarity? You got to spank your child. Just say, honey, just so you know, I'm doing you a favor. I am actually saving you from early death. Do you want to hug me now or wait till after I spank you? See, it's all, it's all set up here beautifully, right? Now, we don't have time to get into the discussion about the different forms of disciplining children. And spanking versus timeout, timeout versus chair time, chair time versus hard time, whatever it is, right? Obviously, no form of discipline should ever cause physical harm to a child. No form of discipline should ever be uh, processed through while a parent is angry or, or out of control. Solomon is just making the point that we have to find appropriate ways to influence the attitude and the behavior of our children. Because he wants us to know if we just allow our kids to grow up without limits and boundaries and consequences... The result is very predictable. Disaster. Disaster. You got to do it. You got to figure out how to have. The, the, I tell you what, I was in Target one day and I ran into a couple in the church. You know, we got 10,000 people around here and it's hard to know everybody or keep up with everybody. And I said, wow, I hadn't seen you for a while. And I thought maybe they were at another campus. They said, well, be honest. They had their little boy with them. He was two. Since we had him, we stopped coming. I said, why? We got this incredible kid city. He says, he doesn't like to go to church. I'm like. Are you stupid? <laughs> Two years old, he's running the home already? What are you going to do when he doesn't want to go to school in the second grade? Just leave the TV on, leave some water, dog food in a dish for him and go off. The, I mean, how, how do you do that? You know, and I don't, I've never seen him back, to be honest with you. Um, maybe it was my approach. But I don't know. <laughs> People all the time, man, I wish, my, I wish my junior hire would go to Hazardous. Why don't you make them? Do you make them go to school? See, you got to understand, they, they, there's this sin streak, there's the depravity in our kids. In the heart of every child, left unchecked, I'm telling you, it will gradually become a dark driving force of self-preoccupation and selfish ambition. I know what some of you have the little, blah, blah, blah. yes, you're a little one, right? And it will alienate people around them, and eventually it will lead to personal and relational and vocational and even spiritual ruin. You got to know that. And achieving that delicate balance between love and limits, I'm, 
That has been one of the greatest challenges of my life. Compared to pastoring a church of 10,000 people with 150 or 60 staff, whatever it is, I will take, I can do that in my sleep compared to how hard it is to balance love and limits when you're parenting your child. I mean, when do you step in and avert something? When do you step in and stop something? When do you avert a hurtful decision that your child is getting ready to make and you can see where it's going to end? When do you step in and stop? And then when do you just stand back and say, this time they're going to have to learn a life lesson the hard way? When do you do which? I'm telling you, it will keep you humble. Without a doubt, parenting challenge. It has kept me on my knees before God more than anything else in my life. But that's not all. I wish it was that simple. Another challenge of parenting is helping your child discover his or her gifting, abilities. You might call it core competencies. In order to help them, come alongside of them and help them choose a course in life. Look at what Proverbs 22, 6 says. Start children off. You probably memorized it. Train up a child. They both come from the exact same Hebrew word that's translated palate the top of your mouth. You say, why in the world do they get this out of palate? Because when a Hebrew mom would give birth, the midwife would deliver the birth, clean the baby up. Immediately she would, she would dip her fingers maybe into some date juice, something that was tangy or, or tart, and she would rub the gums and the palate, and it would create a baby sucking. And then she would give it back to the mom, and the mom would begin nursing. So literally what Solomon is saying here is, as a parent, you've got to create a thirst in your child for the way that they should go again it's a one word in the hebrew but it's the picture of an archer with a bow putting the arrow in it and pointing it toward a target right he says you got to create as a parent it's your job to create a thirst in your child for the way that they're going to go and even when they are old, when even when they are old they will not turn from it and really solomon's giving us two layers of understanding in this proverb the first is kind of a general truth um I'm just looking at my watch. I'm going very long, but that's okay. You guys, this is my fifth time. I learn some new stuff every time, right? The first is a general truth about child rearing. And what he's saying is this, and I'm almost done. Most of the patterns that we set for our kids early on in life as we create that thirst, most of those things will gradually take root and they will, your child will own those patterns. For example, if you teach and train your children about the difference in right and wrong, or if we teach them about being responsible and respectful and kind, if we teach them God's truths and principles and precepts, Solomon says, over time, do it, create that thirst in their life, get them going in the right direction, eventually those values will probably become their own over time. That's one layer of understanding. Now, that's not the way we usually approach rearing our kids, and I think we typically make two mistakes. One, we tend to rear our kids the way we were reared, right? Dads are the worst. That's the way my dad did it, that's the way I'm doing it, right? Well, and we make big mistakes. And then second, we, we tend to compare our children to each other. We have the first one, they go off to school, they're a great student. We assume automatically the second one's going to be a great student. Or the first one's a great athlete, and all of a sudden the other one's running around the yard with a harp one day. You're like, what happened here? I mean, it's just, you know, we just know they're different. So Solomon says, start off a child in the way that he or she will go. Create that thirst. And he says, generally speaking, they'll make it their own later in life. But I want you to understand something. That is not an ironclad guarantee or promise. It's a principle. And I say that because a lot of parents spend a lot of their life beating themselves up, saying, I took them to church, I read the Bible, I prayed over them, I even sacrificed and sent them to a Christian school, and now they say they don't even believe there's a God, and they're out being prodigal and doing all kinds of things that I don't approve of. 
How did I screw up as a parent? And often I say, well, maybe you didn't screw up at all. Because remember what I said last week, every little child sitting around our table, they have their own sin nature, they have their own will, and they have to make their own choices. There's also one other slant on Proverbs 22.6, and it's this. Solomon's also challenging parents to help their children discover their aptitudes, their natural abilities, so that eventually when that child grows up, they can find that path that's unique for them to take in life. And this is tough. This is important. And I would say apart from establishing a spiritual heritage and a, apart from pouring out massive amounts of love balanced with appropriate kinds of boundaries and limits, the next greatest gift you can give your child is an understanding and insight into the special abilities that God has put in their lives. And it's so that your child can understand, boy, there's some things I'm naturally good at. There are some ways that God has wired me to do certain things. And I'm just telling you, parents, we've got to get this right. And it requires discernment, and it requires boatloads of hours of observation. And you've got to mix that in with some wisdom from God. But when you get it right, when you can see this in your child and get them moving in the right direction, it gives them confidence, it builds their self-esteem, it helps them discover God's wiring plan for their, uh, and how he's, he, he's, he's given them their gift mix. And if you raise kids like this, Solomon says this, one day they're going to thank you. It may not be until they're 30. Both of my boys have sat down with me now that they're in their 30s. And they've talked to me without me asking. They said, Dad, th these are things I want to thank you and Mom for. Because if you hadn't, if you hadn't held fast, if you, hadn't have, if you hadn't have been hard on us sometimes, my one son said, I probably would be dead today. One day they'll tell you thank you. Solomon put it this way. One day they'll rise up and call you blessed. It's one of the great rewards of being a parent. I got so much more I want to say. I'm going to let you go. But I will tell you this. You've seen the bumper sticker. If I knew how great grandkids were, I would have skipped the kids. It's true. It's true. But those of us who are, who, who are like, I can't go back and do it, grandkids, they're like a second chance. It's like God's grace in our life because I've been able to sit down with my boys now and say, you know, when you were young, I want you to know I know I handled life this way. I handled you this way. That wasn't the right way. And I can help them now is they're raising up their children. And plus, you get to pour into your grandkids, and they love you and think you walk on water. It's, it's awesome. Last verse, Proverbs 24, verse 3. By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established through knowledge. Through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Solomon basically says this. Families grow and become strong because they figure out how to assimilate God's truth into everyday life. They learn how to conduct their relationships in the, in the realm of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. They, they learn how to live life within the parameter, the boundary of God's word. And to have a place that's built like that, established like that, that's filled with such solid materials, you've got to understand it doesn't just happen. It is the result of domestic determination as it relates to our marriages and a strong commitment to be a godly parent. Unfortunately, both are becoming very rare in our culture, almost extinct. So my challenge to this group of people Let's, let's, let's reverse that trend. Let's just start taking God seriously again. And let's see what happens. God, just help us. Just help us. Help us to be the, the spouses we need to be. Help us to be the parents we need to be. Help us to be the singles of integrity that we need to be. Help us to do family life your way. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.